0: Uh, we're going to have our reading now. So, we're, Nigel's looking at Psalm 119 over the next two weeks. Um, so, there's lots of different verses. It's not the whole Psalm, so there's various verses. So, uh, it's probably best if you follow on your song sheet. So we're reading from Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Remove from me scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. Your statutes are my delight, they are my counsellors. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. May your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation, according to your promise. And I can answer anyone who taunts me, for I trust in your word. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame, for I delight in your commands because I love them. I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Make your face shine on your servant and teach me your decrees. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands give me delight. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promises. Yet you are near, Lord, and all your commands are true. Long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, Lord, and I follow your commands.
1: Lovely to be back after a little uh, month of resting up. Um, Dave, we need to have words. I was going to interview Mike and Melissa, but we didn't communicate. Um, It's better they were interviewed by you, because I had some dirt on them. Um, They're my in-laws, so to speak. But I love them, just about. Mike's just been to uh, Nashville. So what I was going to ask him, perhaps you can badger him afterwards, uh, he was part of a gathering of a 1000 mike ish thousand-ish churches that are part of the Acts 29 network. It's global. It's very, very exciting what God is doing. Um, so I want to grab him and say, hey, what encouraged you whilst you're in Nashville apart from the food and the music? <laughs> he looks well. Um, I want us to look the next two weeks at this really long psalm, Psalm 119. I had some time on my hands over the summer, so I've been reading it and meditating upon it afresh. Because it got me thinking about one of the great misconceptions there are about uh, people who are not yet Christians. People who are not yet Christians can think, I think, the following misconception. If only I became a Christian, then all would be well. I have this problem in my life, and were I to convert, to become a Christian, to seek to seek God out by faith, to put my misconceptions to one side, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then all my problems would go away. Some people can think like that. And it's a fallacy, it's wrong, because Christians still get cancer. Christians still struggle with all sorts of things. They have great and precious promises located in the person of Jesus Christ. They believe in the gospel, they believe in the truth of the Bible. They believe in the hope of eternal life, and yet they still are afraid of death. They believe and understand all the riches that they have in Jesus, both in the present and also in the future, because of the activity of God in the past, and yet they still struggle with guilt. They have all these riches, all these benefits, and yet they still struggle in so many different ways. All your problems do not disappear when you become a Christian. So that led me to think about beliefs do not necessarily change character. They can and they should, but they don't always there can be, to quote British Rail, a gap. Not between a platform and the carriage, but, but mind the gap would be a great message for Psalm, or a great title for Psalm 119. There can be a gap between what we believe in our heads and our hearts and the actions, the character that we exhibit day by day. Melissa said, please pray that she'd be a woman of integrity. We'd all pray that we'd be men and women of integrity, where our beliefs affect our character. And this is one of the things that Psalm 119 wants us to address. If you want your character to be changed, then you need to get into some holy and some hard work and some holy sweat. Put it that way. You need to be engaged with God through spiritual disciplines. I want us to think about two. This week, I want us to think about how we use the Bible so that there's no gap between what we believe and our character, how we live. How do you do that? So I want us to look at this really, really long psalm. I encourage you to to get a mug of something, well let's say tea or coffee, and sit down and read it through from the beginning to the end. You can see if you've got a Bible in front of you, 176 verses, 22 sections or stanzas of eight verses each that follows the pattern of the Hebrew Bible. There's often a, a flow to each of the stanzas where the the, uh, the end, the pinnacle is at the end of each section. is trying to drive home a point. And we're not going to work our way through the whole psalm. So please have your service sheets on your lap. But I want us to think about this. How can you, if you're a Christian, and how does a Christian, if you're a not yet Christian, how do you engage with the Bible so that it changes your character? So that there's no gap between what you believe and the habits that you exhibit through actions in your life. How do you do that? Here are three things. It's always three things. Number one, you need to recognize the authority of the Bible. You need to recognize its authority. Look at verse one. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Who walk according to the law of the Lord. When you and I think of that word law, there are about seven different words that the psalmist used to describe the law. But here in verse one, he says the law, the Bible is described as the law. If you're a Christian here this morning and you think about that, I guarantee you think of the Ten Commandments straight away, right? And you think of a a passage of the Bible in Deuteronomy and in Exodus where where God speaks and ten sentences and a longer portion of the Bible is written to describe how God would have us live. There are all sorts of laws about how you wash your hands when you come to God in the Old Testament law and covenant system, how you marry people, how you... uh, pay taxes and, and worship God with your money and resources. When we think about law, we can think about that in a narrow way, but what's interesting is the psalmist thinks about it in a very maximalistic way, if that's even a word. Uh, the psalmist thinks of the whole Bible and uses seven different words to describe the law, to describe the Bible. The Bible is made up of lots of different pieces of writing. There's, there's narrative, there's history, there's poetry, there's prophecy, And the list goes on. But when the psalmist looks at the whole Bible, he says, verse 1, Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. He looks at it and doesn't just see a piece of Deuteronomy and a piece of Exodus. He sees the law of God. He sees it as a unity, as a unified whole. And here's the interesting thing. Not only does the psalmist think of it as the law, Jesus, when he spoke, he called it the law as well. Now, Jesus knows his Bible. And so Jesus, who knew about narrative and knew about the history and knew about portions of of poetry and law, what does Jesus say? He quotes in the New Testament and he says, it is written in your law, twice in the book of Matthew. So Jesus, who knows his Bible from front to back and back to front, says it's the law. And what is Jesus trying to say? He didn't misspeak, he didn't speak uh, without thinking or in a casual way. What's he trying to say by it's all law? The whole thing is law. I think he's trying to say this. The Bible is to be the authority in your life because it's God's words. You can call it statutes, you can call it law, you can call it commandments, you can call it God's word, but it is a binding authoritative book. Not because it's just an ordinary book, but because it's God's book. God spoke this word through 40 different authors. By the Spirit of God, he breathed and inspired human authors through their own character and influences and own styles. They weren't just typewriters, but this is God's word. So verse 1, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk, there's an action there, according to the law of God. In other words, you cannot understand the Bible as authoritative the way you interact with the speed limit. I was going to say the way I looked at my speedo, but that can mean a different thing. So let's just say a speedometer. You know, sometimes when you're in a rush, I view the speed limit as the law of the land, as a guideline. Anyone else have that? It's a recommendation because I'm in a hurry. I need to pick someone up, and I need to get there from A to B as quick as I can. Now, no one's going to quabble about five or... Maybe a few more miles an hour, because it's just a guideline, because I'm in a rush. When I've got all the time in the world, then I'm a good law-abiding citizen. And so when I see 30, it means 30. And of course, because I'm a Pharisee at heart, anyone who hits 32 or 33, who bombs by, they're clearly out of whack. They're wrong. How dare they go quickly? Because I'm a very good moral compass, you see. You cannot come to the Bible like that, friends. The Bible is not like your speedometer, call it the proper thing. It's not like that. It's not like a law of the land that is pliable in your hands. You cannot pick or choose like the old pick and mix in Woolworths, rest its soul. You've got to think about the Bible as the word of God. And so the psalmist says, and Jesus says, the whole of the Bible is the law. It's the statutes given by God. Don't think of it of a minimalistic way for a specific people at a specific time, in a specific era long ago. It's a dusty old book that gets dust on my shelf. No, the Bible is an authoritative living word. That if you were to live with no gap between what you believe and your character, no gap between what you understand of the promises of God and how you you behave, that begins, friends, by understanding that the Bible is an authoritative word. Look at verse 2. Blessed are they who keep his statutes. Think how the word has changed. It's a different word you skip down to verse 152 near the end of the reading, long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. Get that? This is a permanent word. It's not for a specific people group. It's not just for Moses and his friends in the Old Testament. It's for you and me too. It's not just for Western Christians. It's not just for literate people. It's for those who can understand only by hearing. This Bible, this word is authoritative. Not because it's written by Holman or printed by them. Because it's the word of God. And that's why the first thing we need to understand is that it's never outmoded. It's not like a speedometer where we can just negotiate depending on our agenda. It's authoritative because God has spoken his word. And it's a living word. Now, let's be honest. We can make that point, but this is where the troubles begin. If you think about this, if you grab hold of this, then this is where the problems begin. The cash value of seeing that the Bible is authoritative comes very close to my heart because I have an issue with authority. Just ask my wife. Here's how pathetic I can be. I was in Sainsbury's this week, and they have a travelator, the Sainsbury's in Sutton, and it says in the wisdom of health and safety in the modern world, as you start on the travelator, please do not run. So I smoked at Megan and ran up. I just wanted to do it. It's a tiny little thing, but there is something in my heart and in yours that just balks at everything authority. When it comes to understanding the Bible, doesn't this just cramp your style if you're not yet a Christian and you're here this morning? Why on earth would you want to come under the authority of a book? Surely you know what's best for your spiritual life. Wouldn't it be so cramping just to believe in one moral, one spiritual, one God-given framework? What about if you did what you used to do in Woolworths when you were little and pick a little bit from Islam, pick a little bit from the East, pick a little bit from the West and make up your own religion? Wouldn't that be better, more spiritual freedom, more liberating rather than coming under the authority of an old and ancient book? There'd be no freedom if you did this. There'd be no spiritual vitality in life if you did this, right? Well, Jesus and the psalmists say something that is completely the opposite to that way of thinking. They say, actually, when you come under the authority of King Jesus, when you believe in the Bible, when you believe in the one to whom the Bible points to, that's not spiritual death, that's life. That's not a, a squashing of your religious liberty. It's true freedom. So becoming a Christian and growing as a Christian and not having any gap in your life between what you believe and how you live, that is a posture of your heart thing. That's a daily choice matter where you recognize who God is and you say, God, left to my own devices, I am in darkness, as Dave so helpfully pointed out. I am a spiritual rebel. There's nothing good in me, but in your word is life and light. And I want to choose today, not tomorrow, today, to get to that couch, to get to that sofa, to get to that chair, to get to that workroom. And with my Bible, I'm going to open it up, and I'm going to have a posture, a demeanour of my heart, where I listen to your voice, where I shut out the distractions of the world. And it's so hard for busy mums to do this. So dads, we need to help our wives to do this. And I want to listen for your voice. Because thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Becky Manley Pippett put it so helpfully in one of her books, talking about the submission of your heart. What do you submit to? If you're not going to submit to the God of the Word, the Word of God, therefore, you will be submitting to something else. Here's how she puts it so helpfully. Whatever controls you is your God. The one who seeks power is controlled by power. The one who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. So what controls you? What's the Lord of your life? What authority do you bow to? Look at Psalm 119 verse 151. The psalmist says, all your commands are true. These commands, these words are eternal in their weight and value. They are 100% true. And don't think, just finally on this point, that the Bible is authoritative, that this is only time-bodied until Jesus came. Just spend one minute thinking about how Jesus interacted with the Bible that he had at his time. In Matthew 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5:17, Jesus says these famous words: Do not think that I've come to loosen the law or the prophets. I've not come to change one jot or tittle, the smallest part of even a letter. I've not come to take it away, I've come to fulfil it, says Jesus. I'm not going to loosen, I'm not going to undo like you would a nut or a bolt. I'm not going to loosen one nut or bolt of the Bible. I'm not going to change one small uh, pen stroke of the person that was inspired by the Spirit of God. I'm not going to change one thing. I've not come to do away with it, it's all about me. I've come to fulfil it. Every sentence whispers his name. All the letters, even the parts of the letters, friends, They're binding on us, says the psalmist. They're absolutely authoritative. And when you grasp that, when you grasp that, it's time for the second point. Then you're ready to unlock its power. If you recognize its authority, then it's time to unlock its power. You can't do the second until your heart bows and recognizes the first. This is an authoritative word for all times and for all seasons. But when you've done that, then you can unlock its power two things. Look at verse 45. First of all, freedom. What's the power of the Bible? It's about freedom, verse 45. I will walk about in freedom. I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. We could substitute law. We could substitute commandments. I will walk about in freedom. I shall walk about in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. Now most people will think, I think, I've sought out your precepts. The more I submit totally to you, the more free I would get. People would think, how can that be? If I submit to an authority, that's going to be someone who cramps my style. I'm going to have to stand, wasting a few valuable seconds of my life, up the Travelator in Sainsbury's. So I want to run up there. I don't want to submit to Sainsbury's at this point. I just want to buy their food and so on. But notice the metaphor that's used here. I will walk about in freedom. Why? I will walk in a wide place. I will know freedom because I've sought your word out. Because I know you more. This uh, metaphor is a broad place is talking about freedom. It's talking about freedom. The power of the Bible is that you can know freedom. I thought about this this week with a smile on my face, and I can say this because my daughter's not here. She's contagious. She and I had a great treat back in February. We went to the Schilthorn in Switzerland. You'd go up for four cable cars, about 1,000 feet at a time. So by the time you're at the third stage, you're talking about 2,000 meters. Old money, about 6,000 feet. That's high. Now, um, me being macho and liking uh, skiing, I sort of put Megan in her places pretty early on. But there's one point when she completely outdid me, and that was at this stage. Three... Uh, Cable cars up about 6,000 feet, 2,000 meters because there, as part of the restaurant, was what they call the the skywalk. The skywalk is a piece of glass followed by another piece of glass with a glass handrail that circumvents this outcrop of rock. You are looking down through the glass that you trust has been made well by Pilkington. And you can see down there, you can see clouds, I kid you not. You can see birds of prey. That's how high you are. Now, I uh, stepped out following my daughter. She said, let's go around here, Dad. I said, sure. I lasted, I kid you not, I don't have issues with vertigo until this point. I lasted four strides, and I said, Shall we get a hot chocolate? <laughs> I tried to bribe my way out of it. When you're in that place, going round, as I was clinging to the rock on one side, as Megan was bouncing along on the glass, looking at these birds of prey, hey, look at that one. Look at that parasender over there. You were that high. You could see the clouds. When you're there, you don't know freedom. I certainly didn't. I was glued to the rock. But the walkway made from glass on the bottom and on the side had done well. I didn't know freedom. It was a narrow place. It was a narrow walkway that was so jam-packed as I tried to turn back to buy a hot chocolate that you couldn't go. The psalmist is not talking about that. The psalmist is talking about the freedom of a wide open space. Now contrast me cowering against the rock in this narrow space to a power that we saw. Grown men, didn't see any women doing it, I'm sure they do it as well. Grown men running off the side of a cliff and then, because they've got a parachute, and then tucking their feet into a harness beneath their backside and then gliding, gliding around this amazing, Swiss cacophony of mountains in this valley with beautiful, incredibly beautiful blue sky with the sun beating down, joining the birds. There's about 15 men going around parascending going around and around and around. Now, that is freedom in a wide place. They're not cowering against the rock like me, a real man. They're there hanging with uh, bits of nylon string and stuff from a huge panoply above their heads. That is freedom, the freedom of the wide and open spaces. And that is the freedom that you can know if you know the God of the Bible. Here, this is what the psalmist is saying. Now that I am free, I'm only free because I'm your servant. You're my master. Nothing else rules me. I know the freedom of parasending because I know you. Now that I serve you, nothing else around me is weighing me down. There are things that I felt I had to have like in the back of the torch. I had to have a great career. I had to know pleasure. I had to be a great sports person. But now, I can leave all those good things to the side because I finally have you. i found the freedom not of a narrow space, not of law in that narrow legalistic meaning of the word. I know you, and it's as if I'm parasending. When people parasend, by the way, so I'm told I've not done it, not got the head for heights perhaps, it's this wonderful picture of freedom, but it's freedom—it's freedom within the rules. Imagine a, a parascender went, and they didn't know the rules of uh, aerodynamics and uh, the aerodynamic re- realities of the currents. Y- you see these guys as they pull on these cables, and they're gliding for a couple of hours, just circling, go high and low, depending on the warm currents. So I'm told. How can they enjoy the freedom of the parasender? because they know the realities that they were built for. They know the reality of the warm air and the currents, and therefore they soar high and they drop low. They're in complete control because they know the rules. But try and put that parasender just with the weight of the uh, panoply on their back. They're not designed and built for the land. It's something you've got to get through so that you can enjoy the high stuff. Imagine putting them in water. They could drown, sadly. Because they're not built for the land, they're not built for the water, they're built for the beauty of the sky. Friends, freedom that the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 152, freedom is finding the environment you were made for. That's freedom, that's true freedom. Freedom is finding the environment you were made for. It's about finding the right boundaries. Look at verse 133. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Look uh, more forward, verse 45. Verse 45, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings, and I will not be put to shame, for I delight in your commands because I love them. Look at verse 41 and 42. May your unfading love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who taunts me for I trust in your word. Friends, when you put your trust in the God of the Bible, when you recognize the authority of the Bible, therefore, it's about freedom. It's not about being legalistically bound to a set of rules, but it's freedom within the rules. It's the freedom that you were made for. It's the relationship that you long for. At that point, you're not controlled by air currents. But you are less and less controlled by what people say about you, by the car that you drive, by the house where you live, by the status that the world holds on to so dearly. None of these things matter to you. Or as you grow as a Christian, they matter less and less. I'm not afraid of people anymore because I have an audience of one, says the Bible, and he loves me because the Bible tells me so. See what, the Bible, see what he's saying here in the psalm? There's nothing more liberating. It's not spiritually crushing. It's not spiritually deadening. There's nothing more liberating than knowing the God of the word because it's what you're made for. But secondarily under this point, there is a purpose. It's not just to, not just to know freedom. not just to know that kind of gliding in hot airs. You're made for intimacy. You're made for the freedom of a loving relationship with the God who made you and who knows you. When you grasp this authority of the Bible, it frees you for a loving relationship with God. That's what the psalmist is talking about. It's not spiritually deadening, it's spiritually liberating. Now some of you might have to go back a long way for this thought. I read this week an excellent uh, illustration from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Very helpful, so I want to share it with you. He says this, think about the early days when you are dating, when you are courting. Nick and Becky, you can pick this up later on, it's too late. They're committed to get married to each other. Think about those really early days when you're just sussing out the other person that you've got fancy for. You take notes and you write it down, perhaps even on your phone if you're kind of type A person. You note down what they enjoy. You note down where they like to go. You note down the uh, comments they make about your dress and it gets put to the back of the closet. This is, I think, of the guys, really. Or you say, no, actually, I don't like stubble. There's a couple looking at each other. They remain anonymous at the clerks. Um, But you remember all this stuff and you make this kind of schema of a person to think, if I want this relationship to grow, then I need to know what they like and I need to know what they hate. Spicy food is off the menu because they hate it. I have to enjoy it with someone else. I can't go and watch 90 minutes of football again and again and again unless they enjoy it too. You make a note mentally of all the things that they love and all the things that they hate. Because what you long for is to see the delight on their face when they see you. Because you want the relationship to work. You do all these things. Brew cream on your hair if you're of a certain era. If you've still got hair. Perhaps if you haven't got hair, you can remember doing the brew cream. But you remember doing all these things. You might try and lose a few pounds. You might try and tighten things up around the middle of your body. All because you long to see the delight of a person's face. You've got a new standard you want to live up to. And that's what the psalmist is pointing us to. This freedom that we can know within the boundaries of God's word. He submits to them, not because he has to, but because he wants to. He submits to them out of delight, verse 37. He says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. That's the word for idolatry, by the way. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Here he is, he's doing the same thing. He's saying, I want to find out what pleases you, God. Not because I want to be bound by your laws, but because I want to see the smile on your face. I want to bring you joy. So please change my heart, because I can't do it by myself. Please show me the way I should walk. Please teach me the things I should do. Please teach me and give me the power to hate the things you hate. To love the things that you love. I long for your precepts, he says. This relationship is not a grind, it's not a bind, it's freedom. It's what you're made for. It's the God who loves you and the God who knows you. Not a straitjacket that's going to cramp your style. But knowing the Bible is an authoritative word that's made so that you can enjoy a loving, free relationship with the God who knows you. It's not a straitjacket, it's the foundation of a deep, real relationship with God. That's why, as Andy pointed out so helpfully last week in Psalm 77, that's why you get really raw psalms. That's why Daniel and Catherine can cry out. Literally, God, we're confused. Are you there? Have you deserted us? Because our God is not a step for God. He's a God who's real, who we can question, who we can cry to, who we can laugh with, so to speak, who we can engage with, because it's a living, personal relationship with the maker of the universe. There should be tears and struggles, no prayer voice here. There should be an understanding, even an arguing, a wrestling with God in prayer. It's incredibly intimate and it's when you recognize the authority of the Bible and then you can begin to unlock its power and freedom and in a loving, living relationship. But you need to do one more thing if you want to mind the gap. You need to find its treasure. You need to find the Bible's treasure. What do I mean? If you uh, read Psalm uh, 119 all the way through, it would take a long time. That's why we didn't read the whole thing this morning. had mercy on you, but it's a great thing to do. There's some very un-English language in Psalm 119. Here are two examples. Verse 24. Your statutes are my delight. That's the first un-English word. When was the last time you said delight about anything? Your statutes are my delight. They are my counsellors. Look at verse 48, sentence 48. I lift my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. The psalmist, again, is talking about worship. It's as if, delight, I lift up my hands to your commands. It's as if he's worshipping the Bible. It's a very kind of odd paraphrase, but literally he's saying in verse 37, turn my eyes away from worthless things. That's the word for idolatry. Preserve my life according to your word. Your word is my delight. I love it. It's as if he's worshipping a book. Now, how can a book save you? A book can't save you, can it? A book, a manual can give you instruction. It can teach you. It can help you to grasp a new concept. It can help you to understand something. But a book can't save you. But look again down in Psalm 119 where the psalmist says, save me through your word. Save me through your word. There's these two words here of according, which means through. And preserve me, which means save. It's used four or five times, save me through your word throughout the Psalm 119. What is the psalmist saying? How can the word of the Bible save you? It can't. It's just an instruction book, right? Well, I've wondered this week, maybe, just maybe, the psalmist is, through the eye of faith, seeing something in the future that now we see as we look back. Maybe he's not seeing the Word as text. Maybe he's seeing, just with the eye of faith, the Word that came as flesh. What do I mean? The beginning of John's Gospel is familiar words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Excuse me, the Word was God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Why do you speak? Why do you write letters, if anyone does that still? Why do you write emails? Why do you pick up the phone? Why do you use social media? Because we're built to communicate. And depending on which means of communication we choose and use, there are more and better ways to communicate. Friends, God has revealed himself, says John's Gospel, in the most the most perfect way, in two specific ways. Perfectly in the Bible, when we can read the Bible and we can see the God of the Bible, we can see the Lord Jesus Christ, that every sentence whispers his name. So there is the word as text, but then John, the Apostle John, is saying, but there's also the word as flesh. These two things, the word as text and the word as flesh, Here is God is communicated perfectly through his word, sufficiently through his word, so that we know his thoughts, we know his ways, we know his character, we understand his promises sufficiently. And yet, God not only revealed himself as the word is in text, but as the word in flesh. Many other religions have the word as text. Many other religions, like the Bhagavad Gita would be a religious book, or, or the Quran would be a famous religious book, and there are many others have the word as text, but only Christianity has the word as flesh. Only Christianity has God who became flesh, God who became incarnate. And as you seek to grow in your Christian life, as you seek to minimize this gap between what you believe and how you live, I want to address this question, how on earth can you trust in the Bible as text? How can you believe in the promises that sometimes... God does feel far away that sometimes they do seem a little bit too far-fetched, perhaps. Too good to be true. This is how you can take them to the bank, friends. You can believe in every single promise in the word as text because of the word who came as flesh. When Jesus Christ came and walked the earth and got sand between his toes on the streets of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, how did he, the word as flesh, deal with the word as text? How does he interact with the Bible? He fulfilled every word. He fulfilled every single word. Even when he was tempted to turn his back on the Bible and to turn his back on his father, he said famously in the garden, not my will but yours. When Peter took out his sword out of his scabbard or sheath, whatever it's called, and he wanted to chop off the ear of a soldier that was coming to arrest Jesus. Remember the words of Jesus? Jesus says, put your sword back. Why? What was his concern? In Matthew 26, Jesus says, put your sword away, don't you know? I could call down 12 legions of angels. They would rescue me, even one of them would rescue me. But 12 legions of angels could come down. But then Jesus says this, but then how would the scripture be fulfilled? Here we have the word as flesh, saying, I have come to fulfill the word that was written as text. And you can only be saved, friends. Salvation is only possible. The rescue mission is only complete if I fulfill every word that the text says. Friends, when you see the word made text, when you read the Bible but you don't see Jesus in every page, you haven't quite grasped yet the truth that you'll never, ever, ever be able to live up to every jot and tittle of this book. If you understand the word as text only and think I can live in my own strength and resources to the standard that this book describes, it will crush you. You will fail. You'll walk into legalism where you become very concerned about the jot and tittle of everyone else's life, including your own, just like that person who's speeding when I'm keeping the speed limit, which is quite rare. You'll never be able to live up to it, but when you read the Bible... And if you pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes before you even read a word, when you see that Jesus Christ is the true prophet, priest, and king, when you see that every sentence whispers his name truly because it does, this book is not a dead weight. It's not a standard you have to live up to. It's life. It's a life-giving word. But how do you do that? I said it takes hard work and holy sweat. Three verses to close. Look at verse 130. Here's what the psalmist says. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Look at verse 147. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I put my hope in your word. And down to verse 164. Seven times I praise; a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Friends, this is talking about discipline. If you want to get to know God better, it does mean for some of us, setting our alarm clock earlier, and I'm so weak at this, it does mean a holy sweat of taking a sentence and seeking to memorize it, writing it on a post-it note if you still use those things, putting it in your pocket on your way to work, putting a little post-it note on your wife's lunchbox or your husband's lunchbox so they can read it in the middle of the day saying as a family, we are going to memorise these two sentences, this one sentence, this famous sentence, because we want to imbibe and understand the God of the Bible, because we were made for freedom, and freedom is found when we know him personally and intimately. I'm going to get into this. This is going to be hard work. This is less Netflix. This is going to be costly. But friends, it's so worth it, because you get to know the God of the Bible. You need to memorize it. You need to meditate on it. You need to take big dollops of your day and sit down and read it. Don't read a book about it. Read the Bible, because so God speaks. You need to understand the word of God. And pray for me that I would do that too, please. It takes a lot of work, holy sweat, and the devil would love you not to do it. But when it happens, when you read it, when you grasp some of the provinces afresh, you know what happens? You won't have to mind the gap anymore. And you can start to live how oh God would long us to live, to know Him and enjoy Him. Let's pray that we do that. Father, please, would you help me to not talk about this, but to do it? It's time for action in so many of our lives. So help us to put our excuses aside and to, to get our Bible off the shelf, to blow off the dust, and to start afresh, even this afternoon. Thank you for electronic. Means on our phones or on our iPads or whatever gadget we've got, where we can access the Bible. Help us to do that, not so that we just get bigger heads full of knowledge, but so that our hearts burn as we understand the truth of Your Word. And thank You for the freedom that we can enjoy, not outside in the world—that's that's n- bondage—but the freedom of knowing Your loving rule and Your good character and Your precious promises. Father, please help me, help us to mind the gap in our lives. Amen.